For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Riverfront. This is episode number 411. That's hard to believe of, uh, you know, another average Reds podcast. I'm your host, Chad Dawson. Uh, with me this week, uh, you're the godfather of the podcast, Bill Lack. Welcome back, Bill. Thanks. Welcome. I'm glad to be back, other than it's cold here. Bill's a, a Florida guy now, so um, can't handle this, uh, this, this Ohio weather, right? No. I can't, I, I've never been able to handle Ohio winters. That's why I've always gone as Florida as often as I can. Also with us again this week for the second time in uh, in recent weeks, glad to have you back from redreporter.com, your friend and mine, Wick Terrell. How are you, Wick? Uh, so I'm in Colorado, and it's 74 degrees today, so I'm getting some of that Florida weather up here. I've got short sleeves on and the windows open, which I am certainly not used to normally uh, uh, three days into the, the month of March up here. So I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, glad to have you. Um, I was telling Bill earlier, I'm in Virginia, and we had pretty good weather here the last day or two as well, so I don't know what's going on with Ohio, but let's talk, uh, well, we can't really talk baseball, because as it turns out, there's no baseball. So, just we'll, we'll lead with this, and uh, we've been doing this for how many podcasts in a row now, but now it's official. The Reds' first two series have been canceled. Now, let me, let me clarify that. Not just the Reds. Every team has had their first two series canceled of the season because Rob Manfred uh, just, you know, unfortunately he just, he hated to do it. He, he really cares about the fans and he made a point to point out that it's really all about the fans and he just hates to do it to them. But they, uh, you know, the, they, they made a final offer, their last best offer to the players, the players turned it down. And so now officially games have been canceled. Um, I guess, Bill, I'll ask you first, any, any, what else can we say? It's ridiculous once again. I'm looking for Rob Manfred's integrity. <laughs> well, if you don't, if you're not watching the uh, the video podcast, Bill brought he's basically the the carrot top of the Reds podcast world. He brought uh, he I bring brought props. Uh, props, right? Yeah. So I bring props to it. I you know I've said I've said all along since the very beginning of this that the season wasn't going to start on time. I was I said this when we the lockout first started i'm not surprised the amazing thing is that nobody seems you know nobody seems to care about the game on either side in my opinion um the owners are ridiculously un you know unreasonable and the players act like they're playing and they're, they're working in a coal mine uh i i have no sympathy for anybody involved sorry well, this is an argument that Bill and I have had uh, here on the on the show before. Um, I think that's an uncharitable description of the players, um, you know, the, their position here. You have the ownership that's basically trying to break the union. I mean, that, that's their whole goal here. The owners uh, lock the players out. The owners cancel these games. Uh, if the ownership, if ownership wasn't trying to break the union, in my opinion, we're not we're not even here. A reasonable group of owners, uh, led by their commissioner, who's paid by the owners, that cared. About about the long-term future of this game would have these players in spring training right now. Wick. To me, it's, it's, um, it's obviously frustrating. And for those who aren't watching video, I'm wearing a Montreal Expos hat right now as an homage to um, acts of major league baseball that also don't exist anymore. Um, It's, if you follow up what happened over the last two years and you watch how things uh, were negotiated during the 2020 season and how much emphasis they continue to put on expanding the postseason and delegitimizing, so to speak, the regular season. I think 2020, obviously they're not going to try to go to a 60-game season because they still need to sell tickets and make money. But they realized they want to streamline things. And missing April and shortening a season while also 
pitching a TV deal for a 14-team expanded postseason. Uh, you can see where their where their mo is, which is let's maximize the games that make the most money. Let's get rid of the ones that don't, and that's what this sport is moving to. Um, and it's frustrating to see not only that kind of undercurrent being there, but also that it's something that they're not willing to just like smile and say, yeah, this is why we're doing this. Um, you, you pair that with what they did to the minor leagues the last two years as well and getting rid of the Appalachian League, getting rid of the Pioneer League, lopping off 42 franchises, and once again streamlining it to a uh, uh, 120-team minor league system. It's – it's 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 corporate um, extremism kind of coming down on baseball, and I think that's not exactly what uh, the nature of the game from a fan perspective uh, wants to see, and to see it happen again. It's kind of a, a third consecutive season between the pandemic negotiations that took forever and the minor league calling, so to speak, and also what they're doing now. It's the third straight year we've seen this kind of play out in front of us, and. Um, I'm frankly exhausted with it. I, you know, I, I, you can see the writing on the wall and it's just a matter of, uh, do we just roll over and say, okay, get to the inland line and let's start over with new baseball uh, the way they want it to be or not. And I, I'm, I don't know what to say about it, honestly, other than it's just incredibly frustrating. Yeah. Incredibly frustrating. And that's, you actually kind of touched on something that I wanted to, wanted to ask both of you guys about. And it's something that uh, Ken Rosenthal, uh, Ross Athletic, uh, had to say this week. And, um, it's fitting that you're wearing this Expos cap because some of these conversations were held around, you know, 1994 and the strike and, you know, uh, the Expos were good at that time, obviously. And, um, and, and the question of baseball fans, and here's what Rosenthal said, Manfred and company think the fans will come back because they always come back. They think the players ultimately will break. And in fact, that might be the league's goal. The owners initiated a lockout three months ago. They made a belated strategic bull rush toward the players on Monday and Tuesday Last-minute pressure backfired. Um, as Manfred listed all the wonders in the league's best and final offers, as if he could not believe the players' ingratitude. Anyway, the players, of course, took a slightly different view, blah, blah, blah. So that's the question I, that, that I want to uh, address here. And I'll, I'll send it to you uh, first, Bill. And this, this statement, Manfred and company think the fans will come back because they always come back. We're coming off, uh, as, as Wick noted, three consecutive seasons that are disheartening as a hardcore baseball fan. Uh, as a guy that likes watching baseball, you had 2020, obviously, uh, where COVID, you know, uh, wreaked havoc with the world, not just baseball, obviously. You had 2021 where, you know, I mean, uh, there was still a big impact on the big league game, obviously. And, you know, I mean, I went to, I went to ball games, uh, you know, where there's it's one third capacity. I mean, it just wasn't the, the game that we've come to know and love. And so now 2022, you know, maybe we're finally starting to tiptoe our way towards a more regular baseball season, which is really all I, that's what I need at this point. And then now we have this. And so is it true? You know, I, I wasn't sure that it was back in 94 that uh, fans were always going to come back. They ultimately did. Is it true that the fans will ultimately come back and it should the ownership or anyone, the players, anyone be worried about the long-term health of the game? Uh, I was going to say the same thing about 94, but it took years mm -hmm. for attendance to get back to anywhere close to what it was. Uh, and it took, and it took uh, uh, performance enhancing drugs as well. Well, yeah, it took, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I honestly, I don't know. Um, you know, people have been worried about the long-term effects, you know, the, uh, or baseball's interest level with the, the, the generate, you know, the new, the generation of fans that are coming up now. And we've talked, we've talked about this at length. Um, you know, people say you need to speed up the game. You need to change the game. And, you know, this is my old man, you know, screaming at the clouds thing. And, you know, I don't want to change the game. It's not, if you change the game, it's not the game that I grew up with. It's not the game that I love. Uh, and I feel the same way about expanding the playoffs to, I don't know, to 18, 20, 25, you know, everybody gets in. I mean, it's a participation trophy. Um, you know, we've talked about about the DH. You know, it, it, it's it's all the same thing to me. They're changing the game. Uh, will the will the fans come back? Are we gonna? You know, I don't know. We'll just have to see. Uh, will people be so soured over these negotiations uh, that they say, "Oh, the hell with it! I'll find something better to do with my time," or will the love of the game, you know, which we a lot of people feel has been waning for years, win people over and get them back in the ballpark. I, 
I just, I honestly, I don't even have a feel for what I believe, you know, one way or the other. What do you think, Wick? Is it is it a gamble worth taking for the owners, or what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I mean, uh, from from a Reds perspective, first and foremost, um, we were going to come back in '95, regardless, because the team was good. The team had been right. good. They just won a World Series. You no know, expos aside, they were probably the best team in baseball in '94. They came back in '95 and won what '95, '96 games. Um, Reds fandom at that point in time was very easy to roll right back into. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of fans of a lot of fan bases out there that probably have that same exact perspective and say, yeah, well, we're going to be good. We've been good. We just did this and this and this. And well, they'll be back eventually in some form or fashion. I don't think it's the case for all franchises. I certainly don't. And this particular one, I'm not sure is a great time to throw another pause uh, into where they've been, given how things have gone the last uh, since 1995. Um, so for that, it's, it's, it's interesting to kind of note that obviously, uh, you know, the McGuire Sosa home run chase in 98, like even then that's three years later from when they came back before things kind of like rolled back in. I don't know if baseball can afford that anymore. Um, it's, it's, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how much they leverage that uh, because, you know, coming back in a different form or fashion, coming back with a 14 team playoff, like expanded playoffs are cool in a lot of different scenarios. Is the only tournament you want to put more games in? Sure. Uh, NBA basketball, yeah, I don't care that 16 teams make it because the best players are playing each other every single night in those kind of games, and that's fine. In baseball, you're talking about a short series. Uh, if Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom have to pitch the last two games of the regular season to get the Mets in the playoffs, you don't see them in a three-game series. Like, the two best players on their team, you're not going to see them. Baseball just doesn't work like that. And you need the longer series. You need to reward the teams that have been good enough over the course of the regular season because pitching is different than hitting, and that's how you see the best players on display at the end of the season. I don't know how you, you marry those two concepts together. Um, aside from the fact that they say, oh, well, the TV ratings are great in the postseason. We'll get more of those games. And that's all that matters. It, it's, not, it's not baseball. It's not the same sport, and I don't know how you rectify that. So um, would the fans go back to that kind of model? Yeah, I'd probably watch. I'd give it a shot, but it's not going to be anything close to what I'm expecting and what I've, you know, what I've grown up watching and what I've loved watching over the, the course of the last three-plus decades. I think the fact of the matter is, we'll we'll be back. You know, we may not watch it as as much as as we did in the past, but we're going to be watching. I mean, we're, we're the at this point <laughs> exactly. But the escape right now is such a different landscape, uh, not just the sports landscape, but the media landscape and and the, what people have access to than even back in ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven. I mean, ninety ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven were much closer, frankly, to nineteen you know sixty six than they are to what we see now in terms of what's available uh, to distract you. There are plenty of things I can do other than watch baseball these days. Back then, you know, um, there just there just there just wasn't. So I think it's a dangerous game to play uh, because baseball has been kind of waning in influence. Although, you know, uh, uh, many sports have, uh, baseball maybe more than most, but everyone has kind of this fractured, uh, you know, attention span uh, these days. I don't know. It just seems like you're an unforced error to give away any potential audience. I don't know. Uh, well, I, either of you have anything else to add to that? I think I need to move on because I'm really frustrated right now. <laughs> Next. Next. So uh, the only other uh, news of the week, um, because there's not any news of the week other than, you know, baseball games are canceled, but I do want to point out an incredible uh, piece that I read on the, on the interwebs. And this was published at uh, redreporter.com. Find site redreporter.com and the headline was good names in Cincinnati Reds history. Now this is a hard hitting journalism that we're not seeing out of the, the beat writers these days. And I just want to, I, I, I don't remember who wrote the, uh, the piece. Let me scroll up and see who that was. Oh, oh, I, it was Wick. <laughs> I got to say Wick, this is, this is, this is what I love about red reporter. This is quality journalism. Those are some really good names. Um, the fact of the matter is, it's it's one of the fun aspects about having a franchise that's been around for as long as it has been. Is that you stumble across a lot of these and look up and say, "Wait a minute, that was just that was just a thing that people called this guy for five. You played five seasons for the team and just kept going by that." Um, we we do this from time to time. Friday specifically, we like to have a lot of fun on the site, and um, so we have Friday lists where sometimes we dig up a concept and go back through the stats. Sometimes we make them up a little bit. Sometimes we try to have some fun with it. But this one is all legitimate. I didn't make up any of this stuff. It's all right there. Um, 
you look up at the fact that there were not one, but two Dixie Howells on the 1949 Cincinnati Reds baseball team. How does that happen? You know, I, I it's impossible. Uh, it's little quirks like that, that, that we, we try to go back and highlight sometimes. And in and, and this time of, uh, of baseball need, when we don't have much else to really go on, um, it's, it's fun to kind of dig back through some of that stuff. And uh, we've been doing this and, what we've also been doing is digging up literally stuff that we wrote over the last two years, a lot of stuff we wrote in 2020, and bringing it back to the front of the site because, as we mentioned at the start of this, this is not the first time we've had to deal with no baseball in the last couple of years. Um, we're sadly well-versed in how to deal with <laughs> the fact that there's no actual baseball to write about right now. So, uh, unfortunately, I believe there's going to be a few more weeks where – uh, we might have to get a little creative and crazy on our end to come up with some, some older Cincinnati Red stuff because uh, uh, the new stuff is not creating itself as, uh, as rapidly as we would have hoped. I feel your pain because, you know, uh, we're trying to do a podcast here every week when this is all that's going on. And also a couple of years ago, you know, I mean, it was just the, I was like, well, do we, do we just shut down until, you know, the players come back? And, and Bill and I jumped into a different series that we did talking about uh, an actual good Reds team from a hundred years ago, the big red machine, but I don't want to, I don't want to let uh, my two favorite names from your list. Um, I don't want to escape without say these two on the podcast. So if you don't mind, and, and, and Bill, maybe you can tell me which of these is your favorite. First of all, not from 1930 reds, Doug McWeeny, <laughs> Doug McWeeny. And, the, and my other from the list on purpose. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Doug Doug I'm, I'm surprised. I'm surprised they, they were allowed to use his name in 1930. <laughs> well, yeah, that was too risque. It, it was. It, 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 surprised could, it wasn't censored. Yeah, probably on the radio it was back then. <laughs> the uh, Roaring Twenties did crazy things to people's uh, mentality. That's what, yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah. The other one, of course, that uh, I love is uh, Johnny Gooch. Johnny Gooch. It's fun to say. I don't know. I'm sorry. He sounds like he should have been in The Godfather. Sounds like he should have been a jackass. <laughs> right. I mean, right. I'm kind of like Goat Cochran myself. Goat Cochran also needs to be censored, I think, um, along with Guy Bush. Or is that Guy Bush, do you think? Is he Canadian? <laughs> I don't know. How, do you, how do you pronounce the guy above Johnny Gooch? Astyanex? <laughs> I've gone back and forth with that about 17 times, and I still have no idea. I will note he also had a four-year absence in his Reds career. He was 1921 and came back again four years later. So uh, his name did not wear out its welcome somehow. On the 1921 and 1925 Reds, glorious. And, and, and if you're a hockey oh, fan, you got to love Jim Blue Jacket. That's who the Columbus Blue Jackets are named after, I'm sure. I think that's probably true. It has to be true. I'm not going to look it up. but So um, – yeah, I still don't know how you had two different Dixie Howell guys named Dixie Howell on the 1949 Reds. That's outstanding. So yeah, that, was, that, that, was, that was a double take. I had to make sure I wasn't wasn't misremembering or mislooking that one up. And I was like, nope, that, that, that actually happened. Dixie Howell A and Dixie Howell B. <laughs> that's quality. Yeah, that's where you got to wonder what, what they actually were called on the team because they had to have their own nicknames beyond just that on that 1949 club. So, yeah, I'm not going to speculate. Um, they're. <laughs> This is still a somewhat family podcast, and there are ways I could go with that that I'm just not going to. So um, let's get to the topic of the week, shall we, please? Okay. I mean, we could talk about Peanuts Lowry all night, but instead we're going to get to the topic of the week, which are the top five uh, shortstops in the history of the Cincinnati Reds franchise. Now, we've been doing this going position by position. Some positions are tough, really tough. Uh, this one uh, is, is, is maybe top-heavy, I guess, but it was, there was a, a, greater, a larger pool to choose from in terms of red shortstops than in other uh, positions. Uh, but there's also, uh, I don't know, I think we're going to have some fun with this one, um, although we may have some agreement as well. So here's what we'll do is uh, we got our top five. I'm going to go ahead and ask uh, Wick to give us the number five shortstop in Reds history on his list. The number five shortstop in Reds history on my list was the difficult one, because I think we'll both pretty well agree there are four pretty clear-cut top fours. Um it kind of comes down to at that point, in part because the first four were so good that they took up so much time. Not a whole lot of guys that had a lot of chances to play long enough to get number five kind of further up there. Um, quality versus quantity is where we kind of came down to on that. And so um, I've got Zach Cozart at number five. 
Um, it's a little bit of a top-heavy number five because he obviously had the wonderful, wonderful year before he left uh, in free agency and it made the all-star team and, and got a donkey. Um, he's my number five, but to throw out the stat that I mentioned in chat earlier today, it really kind of caught me off guard. I, I went over to Fangraphs for some help. Uh, love Fangraphs. Uh, subscribe to them if you if you haven't yet. They've got more information than you could ever know what to do with. Um, 66 players have played shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds and had at least 10 plate appearances at shortstop in the post-war era. So since 1945, 77 years. Um, Fangraphs obviously breaks things down by offense, defense, base running, you name it, they break it down everywhere. If you look at the leaderboard for overall stuff and wins above replacement, it's the who's who. It breaks them very accordingly to how they got there. Um, they break things down by offense and defense, though. And shortstop, by nature, is a very defensive-driven, uh, for value perspectives, position. When you sort those 66 players by offense, though, that's where I ran into something that literally had me rolling on the floor laughing. Um, the leaderboard, number one, Barry Larkin. We'll get to Barry here in a minute. I think we all have a lot to talk about him. Do you have any guesses on who number two would be on offensive value, meaning offensive runs above average? Because I would, I'll give you, I'll give you five bucks if you can guess this. Okay, uh, so offensive value more than ten plate appearances. Is that is that where we're more than ten plate you're... appearances since 1945? Felipe Lopez. He's up there. Felipe Lopez checks in at number four. Number yeah. two on that list is Jerry Harrison Jr. <laughs> no. And this is the cumulative stat. This is a rate stat. This is the cumulative stat. And he's played so little time, but his 7.4 offensive runs above average ranks second behind Barry Larkin's 240.8. <laughs> Wait, how is, how is that possible? Because That's a glitch in the matrix. Because Davey Concepcion, for all of his prowess defensively, wasn't exactly the best hitter on the planet. We'll get to Davey also. But, yeah, very short, very small sample. But that's a, that's a cumulative counting stat and not a rate stat. Jerry Harrison Jr., thanks to his brilliant 2008 step-in campaign playing shortstop. I'm speechless. <laughs> I mean, that is – that's outrageous. I mean, we, we talked about the Reds have had a long – stretch of great shortstops or what we consider great shortstop but offensively oh my goodness well wow. offensively my my goodness yes wow that's the way to put it <laughs> uh you knew that i'm sure bill uh, i don't even remember what years he played for the reds <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, I don't remember I always, the name, but I, if you if you if I had to give blood or, or give a, the right year, I'd be given blood. It was uh, it was that glory glory years of the late aughts where uh, there was such a fun team to watch out there. Uh, I, I believe it was his 2008 season where he got about 70 games playing shortstop. Uh, played all around the diamond during that time, but uh, hit very well in the process. And um, the Adam Dunn Reds, yes, uh, what a time to be alive. Well, okay, so, you know, I kind of always knew. Okay. Well, first of all, Kozak, by the way, is one that I considered, uh, I mean, just um, again, because after the top four, you could go any number of ways. Uh, Kozak, obviously, a fantastic, uh, uh, you know, final season, I guess, with the Reds. But uh, I, I got to circle back. I always knew this would turn into a Jerry Harrison Jr. appreciation show at some point. I can't believe it took 411 episodes, but thank you. Thank you, Wick. <laughs> Bill, uh, number five on your list. Who do you have? Well, before I, before I get to that, I want to say that, you know, Cozart should be number five just for getting the donkey. Oh, it's just you know, a classic that, moment in Red's history. Absolutely right. My favorite, or my number five, is the Jaguar. Billy Myers on the 39 uh, National League Championship team and the 40 uh, World Series team. Um, he's sixth and wins above replacement in Red's history for shortstops. Uh, his best year was 39. He put a slashed line of 281, 369, 393. Uh, he got MVP votes twice in his career, 37 and 39, and he was the red shortstop from 35 to 40. Um, the women, you know, being the shortstop on the, on the Jungle Cats uh, for the two big years in 39 and 40. 
to me, cemented him in our, my number five spot. Yeah, I thought about him at number five. Didn't ultimately uh, choose him uh, for reasons. But, yeah, we, we talked about one of the other – that jungle cat infield, they called it back in 1939 and 40, the Reds, two World Series. Um, and, of course, one of the Reds – I guess the Reds' second World Championship that year. And so uh, a really good pick, obviously a, a, a fantastic uh, Reds career. Um, we talked about Billy Werber, who played third base on the, in that infield last week. We said some things about Billy Werber that I wish we hadn't said. Um, and I'm not going to repeat them here. It was, uh, I really hope Billy Warbur's family wasn't listening because um, I regret last week's show, just for those of you that listened to last week. Um, so I'm not going to say anything uh, unkind about Billy Myers. Uh, Wick, I know that you've been a long time Billy Myers fan. Uh, these posters on my wall. Yeah, still to this day. Yeah. Yes. I thought so. Yeah. Um, okay. So my number five, I was trying, I was going between two different guys and I couldn't decide who I wanted to pick. And, and I actually thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be clever here and pick Jose Barrero because yeah, he's the next big red shortstop, you know. So that's a, kind of a prediction number five. But then I went and asked, I, I, I want to get some 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 input on that choice. And so I asked my buddy uh, David Bell, uh, Reds manager David Bell, and he suggested that I choose Kyle Farmer. So I'm going to go with Kyle Farmer as my number five shortstop because David Bell told me to. I don't know. That's the best should, I can come up with. Should, should we should we make a quick detour into just what talent the Reds have at shortstop in their pipeline right now? I mean, you've got Kyle Farmer. You've got Kyle Farmer with lots of team control left. But you've got Jose Barrero. You've got first-round pick Matt McLean, uh, probably going to be a pretty fast mover as well. And you've got Ellie De La Cruz, who has burst onto the scene over the last year. Um, you know, talk about history of, of the, the position with the Reds. Um, knock on wood, they've got a – pretty decent chance that one of those guys is going to turn into the next big something for a while as well. And um, that's, that's, that's something that position has not been able to say uh, at all points in time since the, uh, the, uh, the retirement of Barry, um, you know, whatever, 16, 18 years ago. So it's a, uh, it's a cool time to be a fan of the shortstop position for the system again. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. You know, it's something we've not really investigated much on this show, but it's true. It's true. You know, Matt McLean, Ellie De La Cruz, Jose Barreiro. I mean, these are three legit and uh, you know Kyle Farmer is Kyle Farmer he's better than we thought he was going to be I mean he you know I, I'm not I don't dislike Kyle Farmer he's number five on my list of the best resource shops of all time Bill you had some thoughts there the only, the only thing I'd say is let's also remember that this team has a history and a good history matter of fact of taking shortstops and turning them into outstanding outfielders uh, Billy Hamilton Eric Davis uh, I'm sure there are others that I'm that are good Senzel uh, if you can play shortstop, you can play, uh, you know, the Reds will turn you into an outfielder if they get half a chance. <laughs> well, I just want to say I, pr- I appreciate Bill following the rules of the show, and everyone that comes on the show have to have to sign, you know, the terms and conditions. And uh, so he mentioned uh, Billy Hamilton and Eric Davis, and as is required, when you're a guest, you have to mention Billy Hamilton first. Yeah, well, you, you know, and Chad makes me – Chad does make us sign a Billy Hamilton disclosure agreement. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's true. It's true. Comic book superhero, Billy Hamilton. Ah, you know, how do you not like Billy Hamilton, though? That guy talked faster than me and with a more ridiculous <laughs> accent than me. That's why I like him so much. He also ran a little faster than me. All right, so I think our top four, I believe, are all the same. So let's, uh, you know, uh, kind of dig into these four players. Because uh, really, the truth of the matter is, I don't know how many franchises are going to have a top four better than this. I mean, it's not. I'm sure it's not the best. Uh, but it's not bad. The Reds have a long stretch of really good shortstops. So, uh, Wick, I'll ask you to go ahead and uh, tell us your number four, and then we will uh, unpack it. So, Roman Billen's my number four, um, as I think he should be. Uh, he's a guy that obviously had a couple all-star appearances, but also just manned the position for a long time during a pretty good era of the club. Um, you know, the, the, the post-war Reds, the early 50 Reds that obviously – uh, uh, spawned and produced so many other great players around him as well. A little bit underlooked, underappreciated and overlooked, I guess, at that point in time, because you've got guys like Frank Robinson and Peter Penson who are also coming up uh, behind him in the outfield. But a guy who was incredibly steady and incredibly consistent, uh, put up all sorts of gold glove uh, defensive value, uh, got those multiple MVP votes uh, over the course of his career, um, and really helped hold down that position for the Reds for what? Uh, what am I looking at here? About nine full years. seasons. Yeah, nine, nine full years. So um, I think that's a, a combination of longevity 
um, and positive performance on both sides, offensively and defensively. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, it's pretty much a testament to the rest of the depth of the position in the Reds' history that he's checking in at number four on my list right now. He was also number four on my list. He was number three list. Bill, uh, this is a guy that most people listening, I guess, I'm guessing, uh, certainly don't remember, but don't know a lot about. Um, although if you read the Big Fifty, you probably know a little something about him. As a book that was not good, but it was out a while back. Bill, you had uh, you had him a little higher than us, and I think it's defensible. But uh, talk about Roy McMillan. Yeah, I, I had him at number three. Um, the only thing I want to add to what Wick said is uh, he led the uh, league in defensive war three times, and and that's outstanding. Uh, as you said, he got MVP votes five times. His best season was 56 when he had a 4.4 wins above replacement. Um, was traded away. It's interesting, though. He was traded away in 19, after the 1960 season, so he never got to play in the World Series with the Reds. But he, the, when they traded him to the Braves, it brought Joey Jay, who won 20 games for the Reds in 61. So that's an, that gives him, gave him a little nudge in my, in, in, on my list for value. <laughs> Well, and actually, that's something I was going to mention um, was the trade for Joey Jay because that came uh, after the 1960 season, and of course, McMillan had been this uh, basically a star for the Reds, you know, one of the better players in the Reds uh, for a long period of time there, and then he's traded away. They get a guy in Joey Jay who becomes a big contributor to the 1961 Reds that won the National League pennant. So McMillan kind of missed out on that, but um, certainly a, a real key to to the years leading up to that. Season. So if you don't know about Roy McMillan, go uh, go check him out. That dude, that dude could play. All right, so uh, I had uh, McMillan at number four on my list. So let's talk about your number three, Bill, who I believe is number three on uh, my list and on Wick's list as well. Who's your number three, Bill? Me and my number four. Oh, you're Leo number Cardinals. four. I'm sorry. Leo Cardenas is my number four. He manned the shortstop position for the Reds from 1960 to 68. I had a career... 14.8 wins above replacement, was an all-star four times, won a golden glove, got MVP votes one time. Uh, his best season was 65 when he had a 4.2 wins above replacement, and 3.7 of that was offensive war. Um, and he's another guy that, that brought value when he was traded away after the 68 season. They, they brought Jim Merritt, who came over from the Twins, who won 17 games in 69 and 20 games in 1970. So, you know, Leo Cardenas, uh, and, and I went back and forth on him and McMillan, who should be in three or four. In fact, I had him originally reverse, and then it de- uh, decided to put McMillan in a three spot, Cardenas in a four spot. Yeah, Cardenas, of course, a uh, five-time All-Star, you know, um, from Cuba. And um, I don't know, what more can you say? He kind of – we started with Roy McMillan. Again, we're going to talk about this lineage of red shortstops uh, for a long time, uh, you know. He Cardenas really didn't take over full time at shortstop until '62, but still, he you know uh, he was the link between McMillan and what came what came next, which we'll talk about in a moment uh, with a sh- short uh, interlude in between. But yeah, just a superb player, another guy that you need to you need to understand. Uh, you need to go look if you're if you're interested in Reds history. This dude was a r- important part, and of course, you know. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, a lot of engendered a lot of good feelings among uh, among Reds fans for many many years as a former Red, I guess. So, Wick, any thoughts on Leo? Yeah, he was uh, probably my dad's first favorite player uh, when my dad was growing up, uh, and I think I always kind of like that resonated with me a little bit more. He and McMillan are very very close in a number of different ways, and um, uh, but I think that might have been the, the ultimate sway for me because he was one of my dad's absolute favorite players. His first favorite player as a Red, I think, growing up. And so um, that had a little bit of uh, sway on me. It, it probably overrode the fact that Roy McMillan led uh, all of baseball in 1954 in sacrifice bunts with 31, um, which is a stat that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's a team record for the Reds, or at least not in the modern era, but I would be shocked if that's been surpassed since then. Um but yeah, Leo, Leo uh, was was the pretty pretty clear number three for me. Uh, all things factored in, and with a little bit of sentimentality tacked on as well. Yeah, and so now as we get into uh, which again, I think I'll share uh, obviously, but um, and the reason we, we kind of contextualize it like we start with McMillan, and it goes pretty seamlessly into uh, Leo Cardenas, and then, then pretty quickly I named Dave Concepcion who's number two on all of our lists. David Concepcion, 
Um, nine-time All-Star, five gold gloves. You know, he just um, – when I, when I became a Reds fan, so we're talking 83 was the first real year that I um, was serious about the Reds. He was – I mean, we, Johnny Bench was his final season that year. But for that season and the next few seasons, Concepcion was for me as a, as a kid, he was my link to the big red, red machine. You know, I, mean, I guess Pete Rose, um, obviously, but uh, um, Concepcion was that guy that had been there the whole time. And Tony Perez came back as well. But we can talk about Concepcion stats. And uh, I've had the argument with people about Hall of Fame versus not Hall of Fame. And, and you know, I used to argue strongly in favor of, uh, of Concepcion for the Hall of Fame until I kind of understood <laughs> stats a little bit more. And he's probably, you know, he's outside of it. Although we're letting everybody in these days except for the very best players in the game. That's a different story. Um, but just conception to me, there's a, there's a kind of a place in my heart, you know, watching him. Uh, if you didn't see him on the Riverfront Stadium, AstroTurf, you know, scooping the ball up in the hole and then bouncing it over to the first baseman. And I don't know, there's just something about that guy. And, um, the, uh, and quickly, my favorite story about Concepcion was during the Big Red Machine uh, time when uh, Tony Perez convinced him to climb into the the dryer. He, he was he needed to get hot. He was cold. He needed to get he needed to warm up at the plate. And then Tony Perez turned the dryer on. He was tumbling on in there for some reason. As a kid, he just always cracked me up. But but Dave Concepcion, I'll let either of you jump in on. Actually, I'm going to ask you, Bill, first because you watched Concepcion. I'm sure uh, more than uh, more than we did. Uh, what are your thoughts about Concepcion? Well, how do you remember him? Um, I remember him initially when he first came up in '70 is this skinny kid that it looked like you could knock the bat out of his hand. Uh, and I don't, I don't think the Reds ever thought he was going to hit. I think they thought his defense was going to be good enough that, you know, with the rest of the team that they had at the time, that they'd be fine. Uh, and, and, and I think, at least my, to my memory, he was the first great artificial turf shortstop. Uh, I mean, like you talked about, you know, the one bounce throw, the first base. Um, and – you know, he, he, he was the – when free agency came about, he was the only guy – well, other than Bench, he was the last guy at the time to spend his whole career with the Reds. Uh, you know, Bench retired and Concepcion was still here, and, and he was the last guy that was part – still, you know, had never left and was part of the big red machine. And I, I've had the same argument with people that you talked about, Chad, about Concepcion in the Hall of Fame. And I think he's in the hall of very, very good. The same one that he and Veda Pinson have, they're, they're, they're right next to each other in that place. Uh, they're both great players, but they're not hall of fame players. Um, and that's not a no, criticism. I mean, no, it's not, it's not an insult. It's not a criticism. Right. Um, uh, Veda Pinson's son got really pissed at me either on Twitter or something or red leg nation or something. Cause I said he wasn't a hall of fame. Uh, you know, oh, gosh, so, we're going to be getting Dave kids tweeting at us now. <laughs> but, you know, <sighs> Davey was was a, a heck of a shortstop um, and was a big part of the big red machine. Uh, when you got Bench, Concepcion, Morgan, and Geronimo up the middle, that's pretty strong. <laughs> Wait, do you have any real, any memories at all of – of Concepcion, or was that just a little bit before you? Very, very few. I think the first game I went to in Riverfront Stadium when it was when I was about four or five, which would have been like eighty-seven ish, um, and he was still there. And like that—that's the—that's the aspect of Davey that I think has that kind of aura feel to him because uh, the Reds kept trusting him. He kept trusting the Reds. He didn't angle to get out when he got older or whatever else. They were they were tied together for what nineteen seasons nineteen seasons I think um, and it, it was they were they became you know synonymous with one another. It was David Concepcion playing on the turf at at, at Riverfront Stadium once they moved in there? What 90, it's seventy five. Um, so it's um, he was very much a nostalgic player for me when I was younger. Uh, he had that kind of feel because he was you know crossing thresholds and crossing milestones and everything else. Um, getting over to 2000 hits and everything else. Uh, I, I wish I would have had a chance to watch more of what he did uh, playing defense the way he did on that AstroTurf because the limited highlights that I get a chance to see 
Um, he was an artist out there. And there's a reason why that kind of lore exists because it wasn't just that Riverfront had that. Uh, Three Rivers had that. And Veteran Stadium had that. And there were a lot of stadiums out there where he was playing in where the way he played that kind of defense, we don't see these days because there's not that surface, but he was very much up against it in a lot of places he played. And so, um, you know, obviously the defense that he brought to the table is world-class and uh, the accolades he picked up for it um, are pretty elite. You know, he got all the defensive ratings. He's the Reds career leader in uh, uh, defensive runs above average for shortstops beyond even Barry Larkin, who I watched my entire formative years and who I always thought was perhaps the best defensive mid- or, uh, infielder up the middle that I'd ever seen. Um, so comparing him back to who I didn't have a chance to watch so much, it's like, wow, that was, that's pretty incredible looking at those numbers out there. Um, you know, I, I, I think there are, there are worse players in the hall of fame than David Concepcion. I think that, that's, that's true. pretty clear at this point. Yep. Um, I, I don't think of him as a hall of famer per se, which I guess kind of that gives you the, the, the tunnel vision of what hall of famer means in my, you know, my, my brain at this point. Uh, but there are plenty of worse players than he is that are, in that hall of fame. And um, it is the hall of fame and not the hall of how good you were. And the fact that he did do all that with a little bit of flair playing defensively and win a couple world series championships in the process. He was a big, big part of perhaps the best baseball era of any team in history. And so it's like, okay, well um, I don't know how you quantify that beyond that, but that's, those are undeniable facts. And I think that's a, a, a hell of a career and very, very clearly number two on my list. Yeah, I've kind of come around just because if they're going to let you know guys like Harold Baines in the in the Hall of Fame, I just don't know how that how David Concepcion is not one. Although I've never really considered him one. So okay, we have uh, Ellen, Leo Cardenas, David Concepcion, and then we do uh, the guy that was the heir apparent to David Concepcion, uh, number one on all our lists. And of course, I'm talking about Kurt Stillwell. <laughs> I knew it. I had Ron Oster. <laughs> oh yikes. Um, obviously we're talking about Barry Larkin and, you know, um, obviously if you listen to podcast, you know, he's one of my favorite players. Uh, he's among the very tip top, you know, Billy Hamilton, we joke about a lot, but Barry Larkin to me was the guy who I felt like I got to witness that the adults around me, as I was growing up, talked about with Johnny Bench. You know, uh, the guy that was a red his whole career, and there's something special about that. And then I got Barry Larkin, and it's what the next – my son is going to say about Joey Votto. You know, Barry Larkin's a guy I got to watch from the very beginning to the very end, and he was elite, an MVP. Um, I don't know, you know, gold glover, got robbed of a few gold gloves because of uh, Ozzie Smith couldn't do backflips. Um I, I don't know. We can talk about his stats, you know, far and away the best stats uh, for a red shortstop, but I'm just telling you, um, I think probably forever and always, Barry Larkin will be my uh, favorite red and certainly the number one shortstop. Now, Wick, this is your era. Uh, so uh, how do you remember Barry Larkin? Um, from Cincinnati, for one. Um, drafted by Cincinnati and didn't sign in the second round of the high school for two. Redrafted by Cincinnati again out of the University of Michigan in a draft that saw Barry Bonds picked after him, and it still wasn't a mistake by the Reds. They, they picked a guy in the same round as Barry Bonds, and I'm going to say this again because there's plenty of reasons why you could say afterwards, but they, it was not a mistake that they took Barry Larkin instead of Barry Bonds. Like that kind of speaks for itself um, to stay with the franchise his entire career and to do the things he did his entire career on uh, 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 an ever-changing landscape of baseball surface-wise. We're going to talk about uh, Davey playing on AstroTurf, what it did to Barry's knees and his ankles and everything else in the process um, to still, whenever he was healthy, come back out and never miss a, miss a beat. You know, he missed a step because he wasn't playing as much, uh, but he never missed a beat whenever he was out there. And his – his, his ability to transform his game to be at his best in a certain aspect of his game when it was needed as the game changed, as it became more of a power hitting game, uh, and show he could do that at a later age as well. He brought every single aspect of it to the table. And um, he was the captain. He won a World Series championship. He, he basically um, defined an entire era of Cincinnati Reds baseball that, for the most part, was a very, very good era. 
And uh, I think the fact that he did it all as a Cincinnati guy and as a one franchise guy, um, it puts him up there in rarefied air, not just obviously within the Reds, uh, but within all baseball franchises across the game, because that's something that you just don't see happen. Um, uh, a, a local guy who makes good and wins things and sticks around and, and rides off into the sunset. And I think that's pretty much exactly what Larkin did. Without question. Bill, thoughts on Barry Larkin? Um, the, the biggest thing to me is if, if I'm reading the, the stat line right on, on the uh, fan or on our fan, that's on baseball reference. Larkin has the seven best seasons for a shortstop with the Reds. In franchise history, the seventh best, seven best. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, that, that ain't bad. Yeah, I, I, I don't think enough is made of the Larkin family. Um, his brother is the all-time leading scorer in Xavier University in basketball. Been been the uh, uh, color guy on the radio now for a million years. Brother Mike played football at Notre Dame. I think they have a sister that was a real good athlete too. And I met their dad one time. Uh, I was at a seminar, a leadership seminar, and he was sitting next to me and we do, you know, you introduce yourself and he said, his name was, I can't, I feel bad because I can't remember his first name, but when he said Larkin, I went, are you? He said, yeah, those are my boys. <laughs> and I went, you got some pretty good genes in your family. <laughs> But I had never met Barry, but I did. I had met uh, Byron, and I said, you know, I, just a class act. You know, I saw him when he was in college, just treating little kids outside the locker room with class. And I've never heard anybody say anything about any of the Larkins that wasn't class. And you know, I think that can mean as much or more than what you do on the field. Yeah, and and no question, and I think uh, what Wick said as well. Just the fact that it's a Cincinnati guy. I mean, um, and, and he turned out like that. I don't know. Just uh, Barry Larkin, clearly far and away the number one shortstop on uh, our list of top five red shortstops ever. And also, uh, we have to say, is uh, anybody disagree with this? Better than Derek Jeter. Can we agree on that? Yes. Thank you. I got no problem with that. Yep. I, I think go. it's funny that, you know, we talk about Concepcion and Larkin and in, in, in a lot of people's minds, not people that are, that are stat people, but they, they think they were closer in comparison than really they are. Uh, even if you go by wins above replacement, Barry's almost twice as high, as many as, as, as Davey. And, it, 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 and having 40, you know, wins above replacement in your career isn't anything to sneeze at, but having 70 mm. is pretty amazing. Yeah, I think I like Barry Larkin. <laughs> it's it's funny when you put a stat like that up there, which is a it's a cumulative counting yeah. stat. Right. And you know, even even some of the Larkin detractors, I want to call them detractors because everybody knows Barry Larkin is good, but those who thought they held Davy higher in regard next to Barry would would bring Barry down by saying he was hurt all the time and only played 140 games so many times and and whatnot. Yet he still did all of that when he was playing. Like it's right. a it's a pretty pretty good testament to the fact that. Um, he, he played the game at an incredibly high level, offensively, defensively, and, and base running too. I mean, his his steals numbers stack up there with the all time greats from an era when stealing bases was the thing in, in, in Major League Baseball. And um, I'll always remember. I wish I could remember the exact number right now, but uh, uh, the one time when I was very young and there was Larkin who stole a base and they threw up his all time career percentage. Uh, steals uh, versus his caught stealing. And it was one of the absolute two or three best that had ever played at that point over a certain threshold. And I was like, okay, so it's not just even a quantitative stat there. It's him picking and choosing his spots and being right about it. I mean, that just kind of, he was, he was that kind of player where it wasn't, wasn't willy nilly. It wasn't reckless. It was calculated and he knew exactly how good he was and when to be good at it. And um, yeah, he's, he's my, I, Oh, not to get down a slippery slope, I was about to say he's my favorite player of all time, but he and Joey Votto are, are you know punching each other for for number one spot for for very good reason because he was he was that good. Yeah, two pretty good guys. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a surprising to me that the Reds have actually had because they had that long stretch, obviously. But since Barry Larkin retired, you sort of think of shortstop as a, they have actually had two All Star shortstops even since then. 
Um, Zach Cozart, who was mentioned here, and then earlier, uh, the immortal Felipe Lopez was an all-star, I think, in 2005. So let's answer some questions, shall we? Let's, let's do a power run through these uh, One more thing, questions. one more thing, Chad. Uh, one Bill thing does not want to answer questions. One, one thing on Larkin is we also forget, I think, sometimes that he hit – he had a lot of plate appearances in all three of the top three places in the lineup and was very effective in all three. Uh, and, and I think we forget that sometimes when they needed a leadoff hitter, he said, you know, he, he went up and became the leadoff hitter. And, and as we, and as we talked, the other thing is kind of wrapping up this shortstop thing. And we kind of talked about this earlier, but from 1951 till Larkin retired in 2004 with, with maybe a little bit of an exception in 61 and 62 where some, you know, there were a bunch of guys. And then in 69, uh, when it was Woodward and Cheney, uh, man and shortstop we had 54 years of pretty doggone good shortstop play and i'll bet you there aren't a whole lot of franchises that can say that it's amazing it really is yeah in any position much less like the most important position right okay chad now we can do questions thank you sir his questions come from our friends uh our viewer mail questions because we're still clinging to that ridiculous concept Actually, it is viewer mail now. We have viewers. Uh, but anyway, uh, these come from our friends at patreon.com slash riverfrontcency. That's patreon.com slash riverfrontcency. First question comes from Jerry Siduth. In light of the continuing intransigence of the owners, is it time for a second players league? How about the players just go form their own league? Why not? Just go do it. They have the talent. Do they have the TV Anybody? deal? <laughs> nah. Could they get a TV deal? Ah, TV's got corporate executives. TV's got corporate executives too. That's the problem. If TV's had players. If the players were working <laughs> the players, that'd be one thing. But they want to make the most money too. So it's ah. Uh... All right, good point. So the I, I answer is no. I miss baseball. Yeah, I just want baseball. You know, there is a there is college baseball. Wick, uh, you know, Wick. Uh, Pulls for a, a college team that I don't approve of, uh, so I just wanted to mention that there is college baseball, and the University of Virginia is very good this year. Good doors, yes. <laughs> oh, Vanderbilt. Okay, next question comes from our friend Joey Gaditza. Joey Gaditza says, good day, guys. I'm sick of this lockout BS. So to switch gears, Cincinnati Reds, past or present players, who has the most awkward batting stand? Is there any answer other than Eric Davis? And if so, let me hear what, who it is. Most awkward batting stance. It's got to be Aaron Davis, right? Well, Morgan's was the flap in the arm thing with Morgan was a little strange. Well, the question was who you've ever seen. I didn't see Morgan, but yes, that would be. Well, you've seen him on tape. It's true, tape. See, I can't. I can't call Eric Davis as awkward though. It was like it was like a fencer, like waiting to just like he was swashbuckling out there, and it worked. Um, yeah, it was somehow really, really smooth. I don't know how, but yeah. It shouldn't have been smooth, but it was smooth. Right, because it was Eric Davis. I guess, I guess this is our one chance to talk about the fact that we've watched a lot of pitchers hit for the Cincinnati Reds, which we probably won't ever get a chance to do anymore. Um, so there are a few in there that would probably take the cake. Uh, Johnny Cueto being perhaps number one on that list. <laughs> Johnny Cueto, number one on many, many lists. <laughs> well put, Instagram right. personality, Johnny Cueto. <laughs> Instagram personality, uh, Johnny Cueto. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to go with Johnny Cueto on that one. Kyle Kapler, Willie Randolph, Willie Wilson, Willie Tavares, or Willie Bloomquist? Hall of Fame worthy? Okay, yeah. Um, Willie Tavares, Willie Bloomquist, gone. Um, Willie Randolph, Willie Wilson. Now, this is... Uh, that's my era, sort of somewhat. When I grew up, I thought Willie Randolph and Willie Wilson were great, not Hall of Fame worthy. So, there are no Willies that are Hall of Fame worthy. Are there any Willies in the history of baseball that are Hall of Fame worthy? I can't think of a single player named Willie who Mays. might be good enough to play in the who? There's a guy named Willie Mays. He played. In, he played in New York and San Francisco. I was because there's certainly no Giants that have a cove named after him. Um, yeah. No, I, I can't. I don't remember. I don't think. I think you made that up, Bill. Um, I think it's Wee Willie Winky. Willie McGee. How about that? Willie McGee. Willie McGee. Willie Who McGee. I hated him. Oh yeah. Who I hated him. 
The AstroTurf era. We're talking about AstroTurf tonight. So yeah. How about that? Yeah. That's true. All right. So I'm going to tell a Willie McGee story. <laughs> I know you've been anxious for this. <laughs> this is a true story. You remember there was a time when this game, this uh, board game, Trivial Pursuit, was a phenomenon uh, in America. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as a kid, they had a sports edition of the Trivial Pursuit game. I thought, oh, we get that for for uh, for Chad for Christmas. Young little Chadwick, because he likes the sports. And so uh, the sports edition. And so we would play it sometimes. This is an actual question. You could look it up from the sports edition of the Trail Pursuit. And the question, I'm not going to get the question exactly right, but it was essentially, which, this MLB player, which MLB player is uh, noted for looking much like the uh, movie personality E.T. the Extraterrestrial? He did. Maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I, maybe I need to cut this out. But it was an actual question, and I thought, well, first of all, I hate the Cardinals, so. Um, that was that was uncharitable. It was unspeakably crass, I think is the way I would put it. Unspeakably crass. At the That's time, you probably laughed your butt off. <laughs> do Trivial I, Pursuit, what the heck? Wick, do I need to, do I need to edit that out? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm more concerned about the fact that it was Trivial Pursuit. That's a subjective answer. <laughs> right, it's not real for, trivia. For an, for an objective uh, game we're playing here, I... Right. Oh, I'm going to regret that in the morning. <laughs> Willie, I'm sorry. Um, the next question comes from Hooper Powell. And speaking of uh, unspeakably crass, how about this question? If you had to buy a new toilet and the only, only models they have left have a picture of Bob Castellini, Rob Manfred, or Leather Pants Bowden in it, which one would you buy? P.S. I'm in a really crappy mood. Hooper, we're not answering that question. That, I, I shouldn't have even read that. Rick Scott, everyone loves it when the outcome of a game in any sport is determined near its end. To me, baseball tops every other sport in terms of the anticipation, tension, and joy that comes in those moments. Do you guys agree? Why or why not? Is baseball the best when it comes to those kind of, you know, like final moments, the anticipation? I, I'm not sure I'm willing to say that. Most sports are uh, pretty exciting Um Towards the end, I mean, basketball is 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 great. Um, I don't know, field hockey. What do you think? Is it baseball? I like the fact that baseball doesn't have a clock. Yes. So there's not a there's not a third party in the two sides aspect of it, where even despite the fact it takes tremendous talent and skill to pull off a thirty foot three pointer at the buzzer or a hail mary touchdown, whatever. Baseball, it's it's batter versus pitcher in every scenario in that regard, and whatever the fielders choose to do when ball gets put in play. Um, but you got to get that that twenty seventh out, or however many you are, if you're in extra innings at that point. There's got to be that finality to it, and so I do, and have always appreciated the fact that that's that's an aspect of it that other sports, at least in um, the United States and U.S. professional sports, that's not there anywhere else, and so I, I do. Um, appreciate how that is a little bit more unique. I don't know if it's better or worse per se, but it does, it's unique in that regard. Oh, Wick and, uh, and Rex kind of convinced me just in terms of the tension of that moment and the anticipation, I think there's something to be said, Bill agree, disagree, or do you say Xavier basketball? The only thing that I would add to that is at least up until recently for the overtime periods, we also never changed our rules. We didn't compress time. We didn't change the rules. We didn't do any of that things. Uh, which is again, they're changing the rules of the game, which none of us like. So uh, I, I always like that about you know the finality of baseball and the extra innings too. Yeah, yeah. You don't like the uh, starting a runner on second base? <laughs> no. I loved it when my uh, when my kids were playing travel uh, baseball and softball because it got us home earlier. I'll say that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it in baseball. <laughs> Major League Baseball. Um, Woo the Res, Woo the Res asks, should I be in charge of overhauling Major League Baseball? Well, that's a woo. I got to tell you, that's a little presumptuous of you, but uh, he's referring to a a tweet thread that he had that will never happen in a million years. But I would give anything for this to happen, even though it probably goes against our interests as Reds fans. Let me just quickly run through what he says. Um, So expand MLB to 40 teams. Have two leagues of 20 teams. You only play within your league. 
a balanced 152-game schedule, 19 opponents, eight games each, annual relegation and promotion between the leagues. So um, if you don't follow European or world soccer, really, essentially what it means is you have two leagues. One's a top league, one's the, the, the second-tier league. The top four teams in the second-tier league move up to the top league every year. The bottom four teams in the top league move down to the second tier every year. Um, top league uh, can play in the World Series. Bottom league plays during promotion. Playoffs can be any number of teams, he says. No salary cap, no uh, luxury tax, trades between the leagues permitted. Um, to me, I, I, I think promotion relegation is amazing. In, uh, I, 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 I want to make a point here to say I don't want Wick to make any comment on uh, the Premier League because I have a real problem with his uh, fandom there. But it's, it'll never happen. But I, I sometimes just dream about promotion and relegation in baseball in America because I think it would be glorious. So any thoughts? I know, Bill, I know you're a big soccer fan, but let me ask Wick to uh, uh, address this first. Uh, it brings accountability into the concept of prepend losing. I, I, I am very much for that. And however they're willing to bake that into whatever scheme they come up with for the next however many years the CBA gets into. Um, I think, I think it's great. Honestly, I think it's great. Uh, you know, the, the ability for uh, more franchises to be a part of things that want to be a part of things can be there. And if you don't, well, you're not going to have the opportunity just laid out for you there. And, um, you know, that's something that I don't think is going to be baked into something. that has got a, a natural monopoly under uh, federal laws at this point. Um, but uh, I love the concept of the idea that you can't just suck this year and try to be better next year and save some cash without penalty. And that's pretty much the ultimate penalty to say, well, you get to play in the JV league next year. Yeah. Yeah. It, it forces you to try to, uh, if not win, at least uh, win enough so that uh, you're competitive and, and don't have to have to play in AAA next year. Uh, Bill, um, I, I'll let you talk about it, but I just know you're going to say something bad about soccer, so but no, I'm going to let you do it. I'm, I got nothing here. I just the, the play league up, play league down thing. I have no concept of how that, other than how you've explained it to me in the past, how it really works. It would never be accepted by American fans. Well, and and the the, the billionaire European owners uh, or English owners certainly, uh, well, the European. Uh, and trying to create a super league last year, trying to get closer to the American model because it's a guarantee of uh, profit. You know, uh, well, that's a different podcast. So the answer is uh, woo the Reds. Yes, you should be in charge of overhauling MLB. Okay, so final question comes from. I'm sorry, what was that? What is that? Say again. What? That was a go. That, that was a go. Not Spurs uh, coming from me. Yes. I hope you've enjoyed Wick's final uh, appearance on uh, the Riverfront uh, tonight. Um, final question from, comes from our friend Rich Thompson. What's a more perfect day for you as a Reds fan? The Reds beat the Cubs and the Cardinals lose on the same day. Reds beat the Cardinals and the Cubs lose on the same day. Or the Reds beat the Dodgers and both the Cubs and Cardinals lose on the same day. You know, they're all perfect for me because the Reds have won. And I don't remember what that's like. So I know, Bill, you want to beat the Dodgers. You, you, you still hate Steve Garvey and Ron Say. And Davy Loves. And Davy Loves. Davy Loves. And Chad when yeah. he's wearing his Dodgers hat. <laughs> I, own, I, own a, I own a Dodgers cap. I, I know true. you do. I've seen pictures. I used to own an Expos cap, but I don't I don't know where my Expos cap went. I need to get one of those. All right. So then, uh, I think – go ahead. Well, I was going to say, this, this is uh, – final, final thought as we go back to 94. This is uh, – this Dodgers hate it's all pre – Old strike, um, and then subsequent expansion, and in El Central, we had a '94 themed uh, podcast episode tonight here, right? Because uh, that's all that's all NL West stuff. Back when back in the the Braves were NL West at the same time as well, I believe, which makes no sense whatsoever. I don't know that I like the idea of a 1994 themed uh, <laughs> podcast because if you recall, there was no World Series that year, but the Reds were good, and they came back uh, good the next year as well. So. All right, guys, any final thoughts? We've kind of beaten this one to death, I think. I got nothing. Hearing, all right, hearing nothing, I want to say uh, uh, thank you to uh, to Bill and to Wick. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. It's always a lot of fun here. I want to thank all of you for listening. Um, you can subscribe to the uh, the show at youtube.com slash Cincy. Again, go there, uh, like it, uh, smash that subscribe button uh, so that you get uh, regular notifications every time a new 
episode posted. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook at Riverfront Sensi. And also, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash Riverfront Sensi and, uh, and join the family uh, and even get a membership card. Some of those have been showing up in the mail this week. So people have been liking those. Also, don't, uh, don't forget to go to Red Reporter. Dot com uh, every single day where they're doing really goofy things sometimes, especially now. So, <laughs> um, so it's, it's fun. Um, Bill, thank you, my friend. Always good to be here, Chad. Wick, really appreciate it. And I hope you will commit to, to returning very soon. I will commit to returning very soon. I will commit to doing my best to make sure there is consistent goofy content at redreporter.com, uh, at least until we get baseball back. I, I can guarantee that much. So, if you've been listening to any of the 411 episodes of this show, you know we love goofy content. So for for Bill Lack, for Wick Terrell, and for uh, Willie McGee, this is Chad Dotson saying, so long, everyone. <laughs>